Hey, good morning. How's your 2021 going so far? Not the smooth rollout we were all hoping for. One word I've heard used many times this week is the word insurrection. An insurrection is defined as a violent uprising against the established authority or government, and that word would certainly describe accurately the actions of some of the people who stormed the Capitol building last week. Now, I don't think the majority of folks were actually there to overthrow the government. I think most of them got swept up in the emotion of the crowd, which is no excuse for breaking the law. When a mob mentality takes over, nothing good ever happens, and people who riot, they, they absolutely should be prosecuted, regardless of their motivations. But they followed the lead of a core group of organizers who intentionally planned violence, and that is a dark day for America. Our Bible text this morning talks about a different kind of insurrection. The book of Acts tells the story of how the message of Christ spread across the ancient Roman Empire. And last week in chapter 16, we saw how the Apostle Paul was arrested in the Greek city of Philippi and eventually was run out of town. Well, the same thing happens in the beginning of chapter 17 as he moves west to the cities of Thessalonica and then Berea. He gets accused of inciting insurrection. His accusers say in verse 6, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Paul and his companions are accused of rebellion against the Roman emperor, not because they advocated violence of any kind, but because, because Paul promoted what you might call a resurrection insurrection. A resurrection insurrection that called people to a higher loyalty than to their government. A higher loyalty to Christ above Caesar, above culture. And that got people upset. So upset that whenever he starts talking about Jesus, people want to kill him. The gospel of Christ, rightly presented, it turns the worlds upside down. Not just individually, but also because the gospel challenges cultures and traditions and values and power and money and control. And people don't like that. The message of Jesus is seen as a threat to the established order. So in Acts 17, Paul is now on the run. He has to beat feet out of Berea with a lynch mob hot on his trail. He is secretly bundled off to Athens, hidden in a safe house. But Paul, you know, he just can't stay in hiding. That just wasn't in him. He's got a fire in his belly to tell people about Jesus. And so off he goes exploring. Let me read Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then Luke, who wrote Acts, adds this little editorial comedy says all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Well Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said people of Athens 
I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives, life, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from all of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. I never thought that I would be riding in a car where the person riding shotgun literally had a shotgun. That's what happened to me back in 2005 when I went with a team from our church to visit one of our mission partners in northern India. It was Mike Shaw, Dave Bramhill, and a high school kid uh, named Will Quinn. We went to visit one of our mission partners, the Rural Presbyterian Church of India. We had one day to do touristy stuff, like see the Taj Mahal, but the rest of the time, the rest of the trip was spent in remote areas where tourists were really warned not to go. We were out into the rural villages, far away from the larger cities, because that's where the ministry worked with the lowest caste of untouchables, the Bangi Dalits. You see, in the Hindu religion, you are born into a caste, a social group, and that caste determines your fate, your karma, your place in society. If you are upper caste, like a Brahmin or priestly caste, then you're considered blessed by the gods and you get all the perks. If you're born into a lower caste, that means you're cursed by God for something that you did in a previous life. And if you're an untouchable, a Dalit, you're considered to be barely human. And in fact, you deserve to suffer in this life. And you're only allowed to do the worst, foulest jobs imaginable. The Bangi Dalits are the lowest caste of untouchables, the absolute bottom rung of Hindu society. All the other untouchables, they look down on the Bangi Dalits. The only jobs they're allowed to do are to handle dead bodies and clean up human waste. So in the rural villages, the Bangi Dalit women clean the latrines by hand, and the men haul the waste to the dump, which is usually right next to where the Dalits are forced to live. Then later in the evening, the children go back to the homes that were cleaned and they beg for table scraps or for a few rupees. And that's how they eat. That, that's how they live. 
For over a thousand years, that's what Hinduism says is right and just and fair, and it's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. The caste system is the worst kind of exploitation and cultural slavery, and, and violent crimes against untouchables are, are rarely even investigated. So when untouchables turn to Christ, it opens a whole new world. Being Christian lifts them out of the caste system. They actually go to court to legally change their status. They legally change their names. And so it lifts them out of that degrading poverty, gives them a, a new identity as valuable people in Christ, gives them the opportunity to learn new job skills and really have a whole new life. Now, we were touring a series of boarding schools and met hundreds and hundreds of Bangi Dalit children, beautiful children who used to have to beg nightly for scraps of food to feed themselves and their families. Now, because of Christ, they're healthy and they're happy and they're going to school and they're looking at a path to a great life. The church there has seen well over 2 million Bangi Dalit adult baptisms. The gospel is growing so fast, they don't have enough pastors to keep up with it, with the spread of the church, and so the people are doing it themselves, just kind of like one village tells the next. It's like seeing the book of Acts come alive right before your eyes. It's really happening just like that. And so like the book of Acts, there's also opposition. The radical Hindus, they don't like this resurrection insurrection. It upsets their carefully ordered caste system. It challenges their power. And let's face it, they don't want to have to clean their own latrines. So the leaders of this ministry are often targets of violence and intimidation. We had to be very careful about what we did and where we went. And in fact, Westerners are no longer allowed to visit those areas because it's just too dangerous. One afternoon, we were scheduled to visit a local pastor, but our guide got word that the Hindu extremists knew we were in the area and had surrounded the pastor's house with a mob of some 1,500 people. They were waiting for us to arrive so that they could create some kind of an incident, some kind of riot, maybe like, you know, tip our bus over. And that meant we had to bypass that town to get to our next de de destination. But it meant a two-hour bus ride turned into this 15-hour ordeal as we had to zigzag our way on dirt roads. We crossed back and forth over the Ganges River at night. And finally, in the early morning, we got to the outskirts of our destination. Uh, we got out of the bus to view the ground where our church would eventually fund the building of a wonderful women's center for literacy and discipleship and vocational job training. I'm so proud of what we did there, so proud of the dramatic way that center continues to lift Christian families out of poverty. Now, our bus was too big to navigate the narrow roads through this town to get to the next Christian compound. So we all piled into a caravan of small Japanese SUVs, about 10 people squeezed into each one. Each vehicle had an armed bodyguard riding shotgun. Turns out there was a Hindu side of town and a Christian side of town, and we were on the wrong side of town. So we had to drive right through the, the section controlled by the most radical Hindu extremists. And our guide said, in their minds, we're still untouchables and you're American Christians who do not belong in Hindu India. If we hit something or if we hit someone, we won't stop because if we do, a mob will drag us from the cars and we will be beaten to death on the side of the road. I mean, mob, mob violence is a common thing in rural India and that was not in the mission trip brochure. So off we go in these SUVs and when we hit the town, the streets are so narrow there's literally like a foot and a half leeway on either side of the vehicle. 
and we're going like 50 miles an hour. It's like a scene from a bad movie with horns honking and people jumping into doorways to get out of the way. It was just such a relief to cross over into the Christian side of town and get through the great gate into the school's uh, compound safely. I mean, the children greeted us with great celebration, and I was like ready to kiss the ground. The last thing I would have ever done was to go out and wander the streets of that town by myself to talk with people about Jesus. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He barely made it out alive from the last two towns he was in. And what does he decide to do in Athens? He goes sightseeing. Athens was a beautiful city filled with the great theaters, the markets, the temple of the Acropolis, crowned by the Parthenon, which is still one of the most beautiful buildings in all the world. And as he walked around the city, he saw all the gods of Athens. Uh, one ancient writer tells us that at this time, there were some 30,000 gods worshipped in Athens. 30,000, each one with its own little figurine, its own uh, following. Uh, if you travel to Athens today, you'll find copies of many of those small house idols for sale as souvenirs. But Paul recognized that these were not merely objects of art. They were actually false gods being worshipped by the people of Athens. And what really got to him, the text says, he was greatly distressed. The Greek word there is paroxysm, an intense storm of the spirit. What really got to him when he saw these thousands of gods being worshipped uh, it, it just it just deeply affected him, and it's important to note too that that you know we did not invent religious diversity. In fact, we've got nowhere near the scale of religious and ethnic diversity that the young church experienced in the ancient world. Athens was a total melting pot filled with gods, small g, from all over the ancient world. If there was a new god, you just built a new altar, a new temple. And Paul's spirit was provoked when he saw this, I think, for, for a couple of reasons. First, because it broke the first two of God's top ten, God's Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. You probably have those memorized, don't you? Uh, God gave the commandments to Moses, and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. Number two says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. But it wasn't just that that offended Paul. Uh, it wasn't just that he was offended by the worship of these false idols. I think what really bothered him was that this plethora of idols showed that the people of Athens had a great hunger for God. They had a great spiritual capacity for God. But all that interest and energy was being misdirected. They were sincerely seeking God, but it was like, it was like seeing a poor family spend all their grocery money on Twinkies and Ding Dongs. You know, they had a spiritual hunger that Paul knew could only be satisfied by the real thing, by Jesus. And I think that's what broke his heart. And so into that incredibly diverse culture, he spoke boldly about the uniqueness of Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again. He did that everywhere he went, to the religious people in the Jewish synagogues, to the common citizens in the city marketplace, and now to the philosophers, these intellectual elites who love to dissect new ideas. What an example for us in our world, our multicultural melting pot. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges that we're going to face in the years, the months and years ahead is how do we learn to talk with people who have opinions that are different from ours? 
whether that's religious opinions or political opinions or whatever it might be. How do we have honest, sincere conversation with people who believe differently than we do? How do we get past the tension and the strident emotion that just poisons so much of our world today? Well, I think here in Acts 17, Paul lays out a good pattern for us to follow on how to engage with people in maybe a more hopeful way. See, the marketplace was a town forum. Anybody was welcome to stand up and present their ideas. There were no podcasts, no talk radio. Instead, lots of amateur orators who took to the podium. And as Paul takes his turn and begins talking about Jesus, he gets noticed by the philosophers, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These were the two main schools of philosophy in Athens, two philosophies that are still around today. Uh, the Epicureans, they were kind of like the hard partiers, live fast, die young. They thought the gods were pretty useless. They thought everything happened by chance and that death is the end. No heaven, no hell, no afterlife. This life is all there is. It's basically meaningless. So the only thing that matters is your personal pleasure. What you do with your body is your business and your business alone. So their motto would have been something like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Sounds like a beer commercial. There are lots of Epicureans in our world today. We just don't use the same label. The Stoics, they were more like the New Age gurus who believed everything was God. Every rock, every flower, every butterfly. They believed every person had a little spark of divinity in them. You just needed to fan the flame. You know, you're a god, I'm a god, we're all gods. They'd be popular guests on, you know, The View, or you'd see them on PBS selling their books about discovering, you know, your inner consciousness. The Stoics also ta taught this sort of Zen-like detachment from life. Don't get emotionally attached. Don't desire too much. Be placid. Be cool. Don't get your hopes up. Their motto might have been, whatever, you know, with a shrug of the shoulders. At first, the Epicureans said Paul was a babbler. Literally, that word is seed pecker, like, a, like the little birds in marketplaces going around pecking at the scraps of food. And when he talked about the resurrection, they dismissed him completely. But the Stoics, they were interested. They took him along to their debate club meeting at the Areopagus. And that's like getting an offer to speak at Harvard or to do a live stream TED Talk. He was brought into the place where the self-proclaimed intellectuals gathered to entertain themselves with new ideas. How does Paul begin? He starts by treating them with respect. Respect. That's really the first step in opening a healthy conversation when you know there's going to be ideological tension. He treats them with respect. He starts where they are. He doesn't denounce them. He doesn't attack them like, you know, maybe so many Christians might do when faced with a conflicting idea. In fact, he actually pays them a compliment. He said, I've noticed one thing about you Athenians. You are a very religious people. He starts to build a bridge of understanding, and true understanding has to begin with a sense of respect for the other side. Nothing's going to shut down a conversation faster than when someone feels disrespected, you know, from the get-go. Paul doesn't badger them, doesn't take a posture of superiority, like he's looking down on them or demeaning them. He, he starts with respect. And he's able to do that because Paul did not feel threatened by what they believed. He is calm in his own heart. And so he's able to offer a word of respect. Now, is that how you begin your conversations? Or do you feel threatened by the ideas that are different from your own? And so immediately you go into attack mode. Does your posture, your tone, your body language communicate respect? 
Does it put the other person at ease? Or are you more like a snarling dog kind of lunging at its chain? Whenever you're faced with, with, with a tough conversation, take a deep breath. Find your center and security in Christ and start with a word of respect. Second, Paul tries to find common ground. Tries to find common ground. He starts by using their own teachings and beliefs as a springboard, as a, as a stepping stone to talking about Jesus. He speaks about their statue, the Agnostes Theos, the unknown God. Archaeologists have actually found altars with that name. They had 30,000 gods in Athens, and that wasn't enough. They erected an altar to the unknown God just to cover all their bases, keep all their options open in case, you know, the other 29,999 gods turned out to be bogus. But rather than attacking them, he uses that as a positive and in a sense finds a way to overlap their beliefs with the beginning of the gospel message. He even quotes from two of their own philosophers in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Well, that's a quote from a guy named Epimenides. And Paul goes on and says, and as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, which is from the Stoic philosopher Eratus. Paul knew his stuff. He knew what they believed. And so he used that to try and find common ground. My experience is that you can usually find common ground with just about anyone if you listen and you look hard enough. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone needs a sense of accomplishment. Everyone wants to be valued. If you listen long enough and ask good questions, even with people whom you dis deeply disagree, I think eventually you can so find some common ground to begin. For example, I think everyone would agree it's a bad thing for people to live in hunger, right? I mean, all reasonable people would say starvation, that's a bad thing. There could be lots then of disagreement about the best, most effective methods for alleviating hunger. But if you begin by finding that common ground, the rest of the conversation is going to go much easier. So treat people with respect, find some common ground, begin where they are. And then third, you're ready to build a bridge to the gospel. Paul doesn't shy away from saying his truth. And in any kind of pluralistic society, that is all you've got to offer because people don't believe in one universal truth. If you start with that idea of universal truth, you're dead in the water. But you can offer your truth, your experience of Christ, your understanding of life and God and where true hope lies. Paul is able to build a bridge of understanding, and then he does have the courage to sort of cross that bridge. And that's the hardest part. part is, uh, Paul's able to say, if you do not worship the true God, there's going to be no end to your search. You'll be go keep going on forever. Paul sensed their hunger for God, but he also pointed out that they could not find the real God among their choice of 30,000 gods. And so he said, this God I want to talk about, I have come to declare to you the real deal. Not a God manufactured by human hands, not one created out of thin air by superstition, but the God who made everything and who wants to know you and wants, to, wants you to know him and to know his love and his grace and his power and his peace. The one true God we know through Jesus Christ. Now, we're a lot like the people of ancient Athens. We live in a culture that is awash with idols of our own making. And if you want to go deeper on that particular topic, I'd really encourage you to read Tim Keller's excellent book called Counterfeit Gods. Start a book club. Read Counterfeit Gods with a few other people. It's a great way to create sincere conversation. But Paul started with respect. He found common ground. He built a bridge to the gospel. 
And then he boldly crossed the bridge. He really does put it out there that Jesus is the only way. Now, some people rejected him at that point, wrote him off as an idiot, but others wanted to hear more. And that will always be the case. Some will reject, but some will want more. And that's the way people treated Jesus. That's the way they treated the Apostle Paul. That's the way you'll be treated too. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s. He was killed bringing the gospel to the indigenous people in the jungles of Ecuador. And he kind of put it this way in his journal. He wrote, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact a decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that people must turn one way or the other on facing Christ in me. Friends, that is the Apostle Paul in a nutshell, a crisis man who led a resurrection insurrection. How might God use you this week as his man, his woman, as his crisis person? Start with respect, find common ground, and build a bridge that connects people to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for our nation and the week ahead, Lord. We pray for peace. We pray for your protection and your safety and the, and the safe transfer of power to a new president, Lord. We just grieve over our nation and how far we have wandered the way that contention splits people apart. May this be a year where Christians ask, act as peacemakers and reconcilers and follow your commands, Jesus, to be those who seek reconciliation and can offer ministries of reconciliation, Lord. Make that uppermost in our hearts to be your people in this time of crisis. And we ask it in your precious name. Amen.